Will war break out over Taiwan? And would the U.S. get involved? And which side is most ready for a conflict? The U.S., China, or Taiwan? A new study says the U.S. defense industry is not adequately prepared to take on a Chinese invasion of the island. But war game simulations predict the opposite. China's current COVID-19 outbreak is adding to the uncertainty and another two infection waves might be around the corner. With all that going on, Taiwan's president wrote to Pope Francis, reiterating the island's determination. The U.S. defense industry is not adequately prepared for a major war with an enemy like China. That's according to a think tank study published on Monday. The Center for Strategic and International Studies ran a war games simulation and found that the U.S. would run out of key long-range precision-guided munitions in less than a week. That's assuming a battle with China over Taiwan. According to the report, the Russia-Ukraine war highlighted shortcomings of U.S. arms companies and their ability to quickly replenish military supplies. That's as Washington has been sending weapons to Ukraine, leaving its own arms inventory depleted. What's more, the U.S. has also fought in Iraq, Afghanistan and other regions over the past two decades, likewise using up weapon stockpiles. A potential Indo-Pacific conflict with China would need to draw deeply from U.S. arms stockpiles. Though despite its conclusion, the analysis doesn't imply that the U.S. is doomed to fail in a war over Taiwan. A leading think tank in D.C. released a report earlier this week on just that scenario. The Center for Strategic and International Studies designed a war game. Using simulations, it modeled an amphibious invasion of Taiwan in 2026 and ran it 24 times in a variety of scenarios. Under most circumstances, China is unlikely to succeed in its op operational objectives uh, or to occupy Taipei. Taipei is Taiwan's capital and Taiwan is the island. It's likely to maintain its autonomy. But to do that, four conditions must be met. First, Taiwan must resist, meaning it cannot yield or surrender upon the invasion. Second, the U.S. must quickly direct its combat operations against China. And third, the U.S. must conduct operations from its base in Japan, the closest American base to Taiwan. And fourth, the U.S. must have sufficient anti-ship munitions. The think tank says based on their report, the U.S. should strengthen deterrence immediately to avoid the worst-case scenario. Looking at the Chinese Communist Party, is it willing to launch a war? And if so, when? Some experts say because of the country's COVID-19 surge and death toll, the CCP wouldn't have enough barfer to launch a war anytime soon. But other experts say it's exactly because of the COVID-19 chaos that the danger is more imminent than ever. That's because the CCP needs an enemy outside of China to distract and redirect the discontent of its citizens. Whatever the prediction, one thing seems clear. Uncertainty is the only certainty in China right now. What does Taiwan have to say about this? Well, the island's president says war between Taiwan and China is not an option. And that only by respecting the Taiwanese people's insistence on sovereignty and freedom can Taiwan have healthy ties with Beijing. Tsai Ing-wen made that statement in a letter to Pope Francis responding to the Pope's World Day of Peace message at the New Year. 
The Vatican is the only European country that still maintains formal ties with Taiwan. But Taiwanese leaders have become uneasy about Vatican efforts to develop relations with Beijing in recent years. And Chinese health authorities are releasing a second update on the nation's COVID-19 death count. This time, over 12,000 people reportedly died in hospitals between January 13th and 19th. That number up from the official figure of 60,000 from one week earlier. Is the new number credible? Let's hear from some voices inside China for more. In the northern province of Shanxi, a doctor disclosed figures he learned about the local COVID-19 death toll. To protect his identity, we gave him a pseudonym. More than 300,000 people live in our county. Over 4,000 were said to have died during this time. In one single village, there were dozens of deaths. Too many bodies wait to be burned. Cremation is available after one and a half months of waiting. Prices for wreaths and coffins are all soaring. They're out of stock and hard to buy. Lee explained that many people have passed away in the region, both elderly and young, adding that some of them died suddenly while recovering from the infection. There are 700,000 people living in the city. I heard that 5,000 have died. In the neighboring Shangxi province, a resident gave more details. He explained that usually local funeral homes only need to work in the morning to meet demand. But now people line up outside the buildings at night, waiting for the next day's cremation services. And that's not all. A new funeral home was built here, with several furnaces burning nonstop, and a decommissioned crematorium was reopened. In rural areas, if there's no place for a cremation, villagers simply bury the deceased in the ground. A funeral home in southeastern Jiangxi province revealed more on Chinese social media. The source said that in previous years, the number of deaths in the country totaled less than 100 in December. But last month, the figure was over 6,000, a whopping 60-fold increase. And new reports coming in from citizens in China, farmers from several regions told NTD about what's actually happening locally. They say many elderly people in their communities have died from COVID-19. Here is more from one of them in China's eastern Zhejiang province. Many elderly people living in rural areas died this year. Some of them committed suicide because they couldn't put up with the pain after being infected with COVID-19. In my village, one elderly person jumped into a river. Another in a nearby village jumped into a pond. Yang said there's also a drug shortage in local hospitals and that those infected with the virus struggle to get medical treatment. In China's southern Hunan province, a farmer said five people in his social circle died from the COVID-19 virus. Within my brother's social circle, 10 died from the virus. And now moving on to north China's Hebei province, a woman there said a father and son living in her residential compound both died from the virus on the same day. The father died in the morning and the son passed away in the afternoon. It's so sad. Bao explained that her local funeral home was overflowing. So family members now must transport their dead to another nearby crematorium. And apparent retaliation from Beijing for speaking out against lockdowns. Chinese authorities have been quietly detaining protesters. That's after they joined nationwide protests that broke out last year against Beijing's strict zero COVID-19 policies. By the time you see this video, I will have been taken away by the police for a while, just like some of my other friends. Cao entrusted friends to make this video public after her disappearance. She and several friends went to mourn citizens who died in an apartment fire in northwestern Xinjiang. The demonstration, part of nationwide protests against Beijing's strict zero COVID-19 policy. 
China lifted local lockdown orders after the protests, but now authorities are looking for those that spoke out. Police officers have detained several of my friends. The arrest warrant left their charge as blank. Authorities also refused to let us know where, when and why they were detained. Tao explained that the mothers of the detained protesters are trying to uncover where their children are. We went to the vigil because we care about this society, and we'd like to express our emotions after our fellow countrymen died. Our hearts are filled with sympathy towards those who have lost their lives. In the video clip, Tao urged viewers to help rescue them. She added that she and her friends don't want to disappear without cause. The anniversary of the world's first COVID-19 lockdown passing quietly in central China's Wuhan. Authorities imposed a strict shutdown on the Chinese city three years ago, after COVID-19 first emerged there in 2019. On Monday, Chris Anthemums began to appear on Wuhan streets. But instead of celebrating the Lunar New Year, the blooms served a more somber purpose which is to mourn the loved ones lost in the most recent wave of COVID-19. In 2020, Wuhan's 11 million residents were cut off from the world for 76 days. A list of citizen journalists who disappeared from Wuhan also emerged. They vanished from the public eye after reporting on early research into the pandemic's origin and the harsh reality of the outbreak in the city. Li Zhehua, a former state broadcaster turned citizen journalist, went missing after allegedly being followed. He previously claimed COVID-19 came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Citizen journalist Fang Bin remains missing after police detained him in Wuhan. Chen Qiushi was detained for more than a year and now remains under surveillance. What's more, lawyer-turned-citizen-journalist Zhang Zhan received a four-year prison sentence. She's been detained since May 2020. CNN reported Chinese police detained at least 47 citizen journalists for reporting on COVID-19 outbreaks in Wuhan. While the U.S. officials continue to raise concern over a surge in foreign-owned U.S. farmland, an important question looms, who owns America's water? The answer is opaque, but foreign interests are expanding their hold on U.S. water in ways besides just land ownership. Entities Colin Fredrickson takes a closer look. Foreign interests are expanding their hold on U.S. water. This is coupled with an increase in foreign-owned agricultural acreage nationwide. According to the Department of Agriculture, over 37 million acres of pasture, timber, and farmland are now in the hands of outside businesses and nations. The amount is roughly the size of Iowa or Illinois. Canada and some European countries are the top buyers, but also on the list are Russia, Iran, and China. Among them, China's purchases of U.S. farmland went up 25-fold from 2010 to 2020. In the United States, landowners often have the right to use, sell, or divert water resources. Some welcome the arrival of foreign investors in their deep pockets, citing aging public water pipes and government underfunding. But a senior official with California's resource management laid out his concerns to the Epoch Times. The official, who asked to have their name omitted, said foreign investors are manipulating domestic politics in ways that prioritize the commodification of farmland over things like sustainable use, clean food, and water quality. 
and new research suggests increased privatization in water utilities can lead to higher prices at the tap for residents. Some lawmakers are taking action. In May 2022, Representative Dan Newhouse released a statement on a new bill to block China from buying U.S. farmland. In June 2021, Congressman Chip Roy introduced similar restrictions on Chinese ownership of U.S. land. South of the U.S., Bolivia is preparing to dig into its massive lithium reserves. But to extract the largely untapped resource, the South American country is calling in help. Today begins the era of industrialization of Bolivian lithium. Bolivia's iconic salt flats are home to the world's largest lithium resources, that is over 23 million tons. But the country has almost no industrial production. To collect and process the resource, it's chosen a group of several companies, including Chinese battery giant CATL and Chinese mining giant CMOC. Bolivian state firm YLB is set to supervise and take a central role in the project. The deal would involve direct lithium extraction from the country's salt flats and would give the group of companies rights to develop two lithium plants. Those facilities could reach produce over 25,000 tons of battery-grade lithium carbonate each year. The agreement could unlock Bolivia's huge potential as a lithium battery supplier. The country is part of the lithium triangle along with Argentina and Chile. Together, they house much of Latin America's lithium reserves, estimated at 60% of the global's total. Here's why that matters, though. Lithium batteries are needed for the global shift to electric vehicles. They're also used as energy storage units in power grids and in making laptops and smartphones, meaning nations that get in on lithium mining early will gain a major foothold in the global energy sector. As of now, China's CATL is the world's largest EV battery maker, but doesn't currently produce lithium. Despite that, China accounted for nearly 80% of lithium-ion batteries in 2021. The U.S. took second place at just 6.2%. Also worth noting, though, the price of battery-grade lithium reached around $85 a ton toward the end of 2022. Bolivia's president announced details at an event in the political capital, La Paz. CBC de la China va tener... CBC China will have an investment of more than $1 billion in the first stage, $1 billion that will help improve electric energy at the places where it will be established, roads, basic services, conditions for the constructions of the plants that will produce the lithium cathodes and batteries. He added that talks were ongoing for potential partnerships with other foreign firms. There are still negotiations with other companies on the table because our country cannot fail in the process of industrialization and generating added value. Companies still in the race include U.S. firm Liliac Solutions, Russia's Uranium One Group, and three other Chinese bidders. The president said the project will help the nation develop economically and that there's no time to lose in developing the metal. A battle on the African continent, South Africa's foreign minister defending the nation's planned joint drills with Russia and China Monday, saying that hosting such exercises with what he called friends was the natural course of relations. He made the remarks during Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's visit to South Africa and just ahead of U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's trip there. The drill is called Operation Mosi. 
It's scheduled for February off the coast of South Africa. Their exercises will take place over 10 days and coincide with the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Washington expressed worry over South Africa's plan on Monday. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the United States has concerns about any country exercising with Russia as Russia wages a brutal war against Ukraine. South Africa engaged in its first military exercises with Russia and China in 2019. Coming up, the Chinese Communist Party's infiltration reaching the gaming industry. But it's not just about collecting user data anymore. Experts say there's more to it. Tiffany Myers spoke to Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, for details. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany. As a spotlight shines on social media apps like TikTok, experts say gaming companies can trigger national security threats as well, especially when they're based in the U.S. or other Western countries and get bought out by China-based developers. Tiffany Meyer spoke to Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, about the influence the Chinese Communist regime has over Americans through gaming and what the U.S. should do about it. Anders, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. It seems there's this new trend where gaming is really taking over. There's a recent article from Axios that gaming is now a lucrative $184 billion business. And with that, you recently wrote an article called Gamers Beware, the CCP is coming for you. So what are you seeing here? What are the dangers? Well, there's two major companies, Tencent and NetEase, that are going into the gaming space in the U.S. in terms of design companies. They're buying design companies. Tencent has bought over a dozen design companies, most recently um, in the West. Uh, most recently, NetEase has bought uh, four or five design companies in the U.S., Canada, Japan, and France. Um, and these companies can essentially design into their games backdoors, uh, which would present cybersecurity problems for gamers and even others because uh, gamer uh, uh, machines can be hijacked uh, by China, by the Chinese Communist Party if, if it wants to, if it designs it properly um, and used uh, to access the entire networks uh, in, the, in the US, Europe, Japan, South Korea, et cetera. So it's a pretty serious issue. And, all, and also there's the issue of influence. There's, uh, you know, what we see with uh, when China bought so many or funded so many movies in Hollywood um, or through TikTok is that they consistently attempt to uh, bias the way that news, that, that media, that movies, arts um, are presented to the consumer social media um, in a way that elides or, or it erases the uh, human rights abuses, for example, that the Chinese Communist Party are uh, imposing on their own people. And Anders, on that note of influence and also the backdoors in the software, this really sounds like a national security risk. So what's what are the threats there? It's definitely a national security risk. And I think that what we're seeing is that uh, the U.S. government is taking Chinese technology companies 
uh, more seriously in terms of putting them through a national security process. Um, there's a committee called CFIUS, Committee on the Foreign Investment in the United States, uh, that's run by Treasury Department, but it also has representatives from other uh, agencies, including the Pentagon, uh, intelligence agencies, uh, commerce, et cetera, that weigh in on whether or not a particular investment is a danger to U.S. national security and allied national security. So CFIUS will often weigh in on uh, investments, um, not just in the U.S., but in our allied countries. So, for example, the recent NetEase uh, investment in Skybox, which is a Canadian gaming design company uh, with over 100 employees, um, is a national security concern and should be reviewed by CFIUS, I think, very critically. And on that note, you mentioned kind of how the government is paying a little more attention, but what should the government be doing about this? Is it more laws or how should we tackle this threat? I think that um, we should really be very careful. And, and I mean, we could potentially ban Chinese companies from owning uh, U.S. tech companies and allied tech companies. Um, we can put uh, tariffs on them. We can put sanctions on these companies, um, even if they are, for example, Skybox, Skybox in Canada or a company um, in Europe or Japan. Uh, the U.S. can put tariffs and uh, sanctions on those companies to dissuade both U.S. users from using them and also from uh, our allied users using them. And Andrew, zooming in on the users themselves, the people playing these games, it seems you know there's a difference with how it's playing out inside China versus here, where with a lot of the games, they can be very addictive. But what is China doing differently inside their own country? Well, I think what we see with China is that they consistently, uh, when they identify something as, as having a negative social effect, for example, gaming, they'll limit games within their own country um, but encourage the export of those games abroad. So um, we also see this, for example, with Bitcoin. Uh, they, it's illegal in China, but they encourage Bitcoin mining, or they have in the past, uh, and then the sale of those Bitcoins abroad, or fentanyl, which is, of course, uh, illegal in China, but, uh, but can, is being, you know, the precursor chemicals are being exported wantonly uh, through Mexico, and it's causing 107,000 deaths a year. Uh, the latest, that figure is from 2021. Uh, it's been increasing every year, and we just haven't been doing enough uh, to stop it. We, we keep thinking, the Biden administration keeps acting as if, uh, you know, talking to, the China, to China or the Chinese Communist Party or negotiating with them is going to change things. So I think we need to start imposing sanctions and tariffs much more consistently on our side. And earlier you mentioned kind of the similarities and in influence that's happening also through, say, TikTok and Hollywood. And you also just brought up fentanyl. And some have been calling TikTok the digital version of fentanyl. So with all these different influences pouring in, how much is it up to each individual to fend against it? Well, I think, I mean, Americans have, a, have, have the attitude, you know, we have a trusting attitude. We have a a cosmopolitan attitude. We've always supported free trade, international free trade. We love different cultures. We're a country of diverse immigrants. Um, and we pride ourselves on that. Um, so I think naturally Americans uh, will enjoy seeing things from other countries and using products from other countries. Um, but I think that the Chinese Communist Party has taken advantage of that. Um, and I think, you know, so you, what we need is 
the U.S. government to really step in and educate users and also ban these products. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.